How are you today? I'm well. I mean, uh, I, I turned on the news and I, I heard the news about another shooting this time in Wisconsin. Yeah. And so I was, uh, again, uh, dismayed. But the, the, the gentleman's in the hospital. Yeah. So hopefully he'll recover and defund the police <laughs> yeah especially when you hear about the circumstances like from what my understanding the of uh, the brief uh, bit that i read and saw in the news he was de-escalating a situation and then the cops tased him and shot him in the back yeah whereas this like isn't de-escalation their job like they get paid to de-escalate situations <laughs> Welcome to the What is Black podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we break down what it means to be a black creative in an attempt to defy the myth of a black monolith and have dope conversations with each other in the process. For more info on how to listen or how to support the continuation of this series, visit whatisblackpodcast.com for links to podcast services and our donations page. Normally, I write things down for this part and record something poignant or something that like makes a lot of sense to people. But it's December, end of the year, and I've finished all my work, so I'm not even trying to think about like making anything. Um, I'm just really excited about Cyberpunk 2077 dropping because I plan to do that the entire uh, rest of the winter probably up until spring i'll probably beat it around spring um and what's dope about cyberpunk 2077 is that it was created by mike pondsmith a black man so it kind of sort of ties into everything that this episode of the podcast talks about which is afrofuturism um the existence of black people in the future etc so it's kind of kismet and i'm not going to keep talking because I really have nothing to say. I am just waiting for it to drop on December 10th. And I recommend everybody else going out and copying it on PlayStation 5 if you can get your hands on one. Um, I know people out there scalping the shit out of PlayStation 5s and Xbox, whatever, the black boxes, because Xbox is stupid with the numbering and naming of their consoles. But anyway, go out, cop cyberpunk 2077 and i'll see you all in night city what's up everybody i'm jason mccoy also known as oh that black guy and i'm here with gail taylor say hello to the people gail hey everybody Okay, so before we really, really kick things off, why don't you tell us about the work that you do and a little bit about yourself? Happy to. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm a journalist by profession. I have also taught communications, journalism, and English. Um, After having worked in newspapers, I went to school in the Midwest. I, I went to university in the Midwest, and I went out to California for more grad school. Um, I attended high school in West Virginia, not too far from Pittsburgh, Um, but I was born in the South, so I've lived in every region of this country. I mean, I did a residency in Vermont. Um, I authored a book of poetry that came out in 1991 called Red Dust Daughter. And it came out in 1999. I'm sorry, not 1991. <laughs> 1999. And then um, to catch you up, I had been living in Los Angeles for several years pursuing this doctorate and then came home for a high school reunion. Um, and then I ended up staying to care for a family member who became ill, had a medical condition. So, um, to keep it, to keep myself grounded, to keep everything that I knew about how to stay well during stressful situations, I continued to document my progress in little picture books, photography books. And, um, 
I also memorialized in photography some of the favorite places I visited in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and that. So home is where? Home right now is in Morgantown, West Virginia. Ah, Morgantown, West Virginia. Okay. So you're yeah. we're basically like state neighbors because I'm in Pittsburgh. And yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's been interesting, like transitioning, because like like you have an impressive feat of living like all over the United States and every region, um, but I'm coming from New York, transplanting to Pittsburgh, and it was kind of like a culture shock of sorts. <laughs> oh. It was just so I don't know if like you've ever experienced that in like your travels across the state, where it's just like even though we are we are Americans and like we're in the United States, it's just like even traveling state to state, region to region, it's just like, what? <laughs> Talk about it, because uh, what part of New York are you from? I'm from Queens, lived in both Queens and Brooklyn my whole life. Ah, awesome. Okay. So I am I can imagine what it might be like, but it, we can talk more about this. But yeah, it's interesting because I'm still figuring it out. Mm. Um, when I returned to West Virginia after being out on the West Coast, And also after having done journalism in Ohio, um, you know, I had not been back to the town I graduated high school from in decades. Okay. So it, I'm going to tell you something. I I don't know if people out there will get the reference, but right now feels to me like a gone with the wind moment. (laughs) (laughs) Are you Scarlett O'Hara in this? (laughs) I, I think I am. (laughs) because it's like Tara has been leveled and I don't recognize in other words the town anymore gotcha I don't yeah I don't recognize the people I don't recognize like in literally a lot of the people that I knew have moved away and it's not like the the same feeling um okay as when we were teenagers kind of um School was the central part, but like Mm. now today, people are terrified to go to school in some respects. Um, You know, so there's there's that issue. There's a lot of issues out there that that make this a different kind of feel. Like, you know, I would say culturally, (laughs) I still. So I come back to town. My mom lives here. People still want to know where am I from. That's it. So, like, even in the place you are from, they want to know where you're from. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wasn't, to, to give them, I wasn't born here, but Aritzko for four decades. Right. You know? So, I predate some of the people who have moved in who are thinking that I'm a, a you know, some like I'm a visitor. Right. Maybe, I, you know, maybe I'm from Detroit. <laughs> Like you're the outsider. Yeah. I, you know, I'm like, how can I help you? Right. Right. Yeah. It's wild, especially like going home for the, like going home or as I like to think, like going home for the first time. Cause every time I visit New York, it still feels like I'm going home for the first time. And then it's just like kids, like, you know, and a kid to me, is just like anybody up until like 20 something. It's just like, they're like, asking me or like looking at me like I don't belong. I'm just like, bruh, I'm from here. Like I was here from the crack era. Like don't, <laughs> please don't like, you know, approach me like I'm new here. It's wild. Yeah. So, so there's a, so a young element, you know, there's the youth element. There's today's youth are so exciting and empowering. They're empowered. They're out there doing it. I, I did see somebody in a t-shirt at the Black Lives Matter protest that said something that shocked me and I haven't seen it since. And the shirt said, we are not our ancestors. Mm, yeah. And I was like, what? And threw me. And I think that people are coming back around because like, yes, we are, was my thought. We, we are carrying the flame of justice but I'm really excited by the energy that's spawning this Black Lives Matter movement that's out there. So, it, but literally where I am, I'm in Mountaineer country. So totally different things are happening. We've had some Black Lives Matter protests, but it's been very quiet. 
Really? Mm-hmm. Mm. That's interesting. Like, cause, and like, I want to, like, I'll circle back to that because like, I have a question um, regarding, it's like specifically regarding um, uh, protests and everything that's happening now, this, like this time of revolution. Um, but first I wanted to drop this question on you. What is Afrofuturism and when is Wakanda going to happen for real? I was just hoping you would ask me because I think about this every day. Um, Shout out to everybody who's interested in Afrofuturism. A really good book recommendation for you, if you don't mind me uh, sharing, is Afrofuturism, The World of Black Sci-Fi and Fantasy Culture by Tasha L. Womack. Tasha? Anyway, what is Afrofuturism? I mean, that's a good question. But when I think of Afrofuturism, I think of the juncture of space and place. So the interrogation of where we are and where we are to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And do you want to go take it back to Shakespeare, to be or not to be, is a really big part of this. It's, It's about also lived experience and imagined experience. Mm. And it, like, it's Afrofuturism, like, I mean, I love Afrofuturism. And to, like, to some extent, like Afrofuturism, the concept, it has inspired me and my work. Um, and it's interesting to see the draw that like Black people have towards the genre of science fiction. It's not like we're strangers to it. Like we love science fiction, horror, like these types of movies, but yet we're not represented in these movies. And there, like I see that there's a disconnect there. So can you like, you know, in your opinion, like why don't we see ourselves in the future and are we in the future? Ah, very, very good. You know, I've got family in Pittsburgh and you, you, um, you mentioned the future. There was an artist or is an artist in Pittsburgh who put up that billboard, I believe. And it says there are black people in the future. Yes. Um, and I think that that billboard exists on what used to be public housing or very near. And I think that that public housing was taken down and then people were dispersed. So Afrofuturism in a current context such as displacement. Um, okay, I, I'm going to say this. I, I, I might be losing your question. Um, I'll go for it. We have to continue to imagine a better place uh, or at least another place. Mm. You know, Some people would say better, but if I'm an optimist, I'm going to say another place because where mm. you are, you know, where you're sitting and where I'm sitting... Hey, that's pretty good. We we have a roof over our head. We're taken care of. We're surviving. We're, we're getting there. Right. But in you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, and we always have to always be imagining um, what if, mm-hmm. and and how do we prepare? So uh, let's go into Afrofuturism in uh, cinema. You talked about representation. Mm-hmm. And um, we could talk about zombies. I mean, zombies, like, this is one of my, like, it's a subgenre of horror, and it's one of, like, my favorite. Like, I love a good zombie flick, so please, you've got my attention. <laughs> okay, so where we are located, you probably know this. I'm going to forget the great director of the movie, the wait, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, whatever. Uh, Romero. George Romero. Romero. Yeah. George Romero. Well, look around. I mean, he shot that in the fields that surround us, mm-hmm. you know, in Western Pennsylvania, I think, uh, you know, maybe Maryland and also maybe, you know, Western, Western Pennsylvania is on the backyard of West Virginia, where I am. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't watch that film, though, until like grad school. So I didn't realize that the protagonist is a black man. Mm, yeah. And, um, but it's rare, it's, it's rare to see. And Especially it, at that time. At that time. So I think it, what was George Romero signaling to us? Was he signaling mm. to us? Because he, he could have put anybody in that role, but he chose to put a person of color 
a black man. Mm. And um, the zombie to me may, this might violate some Afrofuturist um, tenets, but to me, the zombie idea or the, the guy who's working against zombieism is kind of a futurist. Mm. That's an interesting, yeah, that's an interesting point. So like, how do you, like, uh, how do you think he's a futurist? Well, you know, why is this the day of the dead or dawn of the dead? Is it this, you know, in which, in which way are we to take this? He is, um, at the end of the day, zombies, I think, are cannibals. Mm-hmm. So um, it's an eat or be eaten or transform this situation mm-hmm. and see if it can be reimagined on spot. Mm-hmm. Because the, 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 the tide is coming, the tide of the undead mm-hmm. is, is ru- rushing at us. And the only means of escape may be something we've never considered before. Mm, mm. So it's like taking, um, if you and I'm, if I'm, you know, incorrect in what you're saying, let me know. But it's kind of like he's taking, like preconce- almost like preconceived notions, or taking things that are like granted with this, new- and applying a new way of thinking to survive. Basically, this new threat that's like very that's prevalent that's all around them. Whereas the white characters, they're just like. Fr- they're either frantic, catatonic, or just doing the dumbest possible shit. <laughs> um, and he's just like, no, let's apply logic, let's apply reason, let's like think things through, let's like smooth this fast, listen to me, like I know what I'm doing, I'm black, all I've had to do is survive. <laughs> like that's just my daily existence is survival. So I know what I'm talking about. Meanwhile, you're in your ivory towers. This is something new for you. For me, this is just like another Thursday. This is just, oh my goodness. Yeah. Because I, I think for me, when I think of Afrofuturism and will we ever attain Wakanda, you know, mm-hmm. it comes to this. Afrofuturism is about interrogating institutions and structures. Mm-hmm. And if if we have structures that are unyielding, unchanging, um, that could be a very good thing. I can think of institutions that are excellent at educating black folk and other people of color. I've taught at an HBCU and I've taught at a um, school that um, was considered um, Hispanically um there's a term it's it's the equivalent um hispanic um majority school mm-hmm. but and but but you know i have also attended mostly pwis mm-hmm. predominantly white institutions for predominant yeah i'm sorry for your guess predominantly white institutions these are institutions that persist but i think a lot of our institutions are under stress right mm. now, and we don't really have the people who are necessarily, in my opinion, always having to adapt, always having to change on the fly at those top uh, decision-making uh, spots, unless we're talking about majority underrepresented minority institutions. You mm-hmm. see what I'm Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Afrofuturism, um, let's Booker T. Washington created Tuskegee Institute. Mm -hmm. It was his imagination, right? Mm -hmm. That allowed him to even think that there could be an entire institution, now university to bring people who are enslaved out of their situation into another entirely different situation. We're not talking about legacy enrolled college students. We're talking about people who were making no money for their labor and then looking to change their lives. And that model continues and persists. Mm, Right. So it's almost like the, like for a black futurist or Afrofuturist, it's like 
dealing, yes, like, you know, about dealing with the future, but also really focusing on the steps that get us to the future, more so than maybe a white counterpart. It's about like, not even beyond like the like the technology, which is something that people always associate with futurism It's just like, oh, technology, I'm gonna have fly, a flying car and a laser gun. But beyond that, it's just like, what institutional steps can we take or what changes it within institutions without institutions can we make in order to get to this uh, brighter future? Yeah, I mean, ultimately change, mm-hmm. change is, the issue because you're coming up you're bumping up against tradition that would maybe the unending tradition the undead tradition the undying tradition nice (laughs) nice (laughs) and um i think the afrofuturist is going to be taking that lamp and saying hmm let's get to some higher place or some other place quickly yeah it's i mean and and we need to get there like we absolutely need to get get there and shout out to alicia b wormsley who is the artist who created the um there are black people in the future that we mentioned earlier ah alicia b wormsley thank you so much yeah 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 she's she's a dope artist that's cool i hope to meet her i know that her work sparked many conversations among the people that i know in pittsburgh and and i'm privileged to know in pittsburgh so Oh yeah, it was a, like a huge deal. Like I didn't even think that it would be as big a deal as it was. I thought it would be another one of those things that like within black circles got talked about and it never made it to mainstream, but like mainstream media latched onto it and it just became huge, which is just like it was like shocking to me and it also kind of sort of signaled like there is a rising tide of change. Like that's, you know, just on the, just beyond the horizon but it's like certainly like coming and that was one of the small waves that that was made in order for us to get there yes i'm i'm definitely feeling that because i too was kind of chagrined at first i'm gonna put myself out there i was kind of like what you know of course there will be yeah yeah I was that, you know and, but then my my compatriots um, some of them are a little younger than i They were like, no, come on. We are under threat. We feel that very intensely. And we need to celebrate this and shout it out and and stand on our principles and fight for this idea. Yeah, because it's just like, it seems so simple. Like, it's not a complex (laughs) statement or concept to assume the audacity to assume that there are black people in the future, but even just merely saying those words was enough to get people like riled up and like, oh, I well, how what are, there's white people in the future too. It's just like, yeah, no shit, we know that. Like, <laughs> but we want to <laughs> remind you that there are also black people in the future, so you should get used to that concept now, get comfortable with that concept now, because in the future, things are going to be different. At least we hope things are going to be different. We hope that they will. And I think that they will. And I, you know, I'm writing this piece right now. It's a little essay. It's a memory. Something that happened when I walked into a white friend's home years ago. And I thought I was going to be meeting her parents. I, they weren't there, but we, you know, I was helping her move. And, um, this really happened. Uh, she showed me a family album, and it was two Caucasian people. It was a Caucasian couple, white couple, mm-hmm. it, in blackface. Oh my! <laughs> yeah. Jesus! Rasta style. Oh and gosh! I was I was actually shocked. It was, you know, I was taking it back, and you know, and. It, here, here we are, we're friends, she and I are, you know, buddies, palling around, and then she wanted to know, you know, what did I think of that? Yeah. Oh, How did God. it make me feel? How did it make me feel? And, you know, wondering if we really could be friends. Right. You know? And and so then I had to think, oh my gosh, you know, this is, these people raised you, 
Um, we've been hanging out together. But at the end of the day, honestly, it felt like I can't, of course, give the tacit approval of what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. I was I was really shocked. I was like, at first, I was like, are your parents um, play actors? What are they? Minstrels? Mm. What What do your parents do? Then she right. told me, and I, I can't tell it. Um, that changed our friendship. Yeah. Okay. I, I would say obviously yes. <laughs> it really so that so we say there are black people in the future. I don't know how many black people are in her future literally. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I don't think that a lot of black people will maybe they would even see through it before a friendship would even start. I don't know. Right. I certainly don't. And it's just like because like and this has happened to me, and I'm sure it's happened to like so many other black people where it's just like a white person, whether it be a friend, stranger, whomever, they'll show you something or ask your your opinion on something that's just so painfully obvious. It's just like, oh, well, what do you think about this? It's just like, what do you think I think about this? It's fucked up. Like, duh. Yeah. <laughs> I hate yeah. it. Yeah. I know. I know. Um, and and so toward, to, to bolster that point, um, the people out on the streets yelling, I think they know what's up and they're just not having it. Meaning, I mean, we, I, I'm a little older. I had to, I had to work, you know, I had to work with the people. I was in fields that were predominantly male and predominantly black mm. newsrooms. And, um, but that's a whole different animal because journalists tend to interrogate everything. But that literally put me out there though with people. I saw a variety of, of, people in this country um but i always had to maintain like a professional neutrality and like stamp down my own feelings and reactions so that when i did make that friend and i saw that i was a little bit just, like taken aback i just was like wow but today those kinds of relationships i don't think they exist much in i hope in not culture you know i hope you not because like, like honestly it's just like there is, there's no excuse anymore for white ignorance. It's just like you have books, you have Google, you have other black people. Like you, ha- there's, there are resources out there. It's up to you to actually like take advantage of the many resources that exist. Like it shouldn't fall on the shoulders of the oppressed or on the shoulders of like black people, brown people, whatever color people, it shouldn't fall on them to explain to you or to like pontificate on how and why they're oppressed. It's just like, look out the window, <laughs> turn on the television, yeah. which is basically a window. It's just like, it's right there. So yeah, I don't think that there's, there's no excuse for like white ignorance anymore. And like, I'll sh- I I'm very hesitant to show any um, ignorant person, um, but specifically an ignorant white person, any quarter. I will like I won't show them any quarter like it, when it comes to matters like that because it's just like it's painfully, painfully obvious, literally and figuratively, painfully <laughs> obvious, like the the state of which like Black Americans and across the entire diaspora, the state at which they live in in. Uh, this society, this world today. I I know. And so you, coming back home from, so I was in Los Angeles, which is diverse. Literally, you see every segment, every skin tone. You hear every language, all the languages, let's say. Not, I'm not, wait, it's possible, but, but so, but yet in contexts, there could be contexts where it's still segregated and mm-hmm. It's almost like segregated by class. Um, and so I began to notice that kind of a difference when I was on the West Coast compared to on like the East Coast or the South. Um, and I began to ask myself, how, how am I going to navigate such ter- uh, ethnic terrain out here you know and i mm. think that's how i got exposed to afrofuturism mm. was was out out there because it was kind of a strategy mm. yeah that makes sense yeah. yeah it being a strategy it makes perfect sense so 
At this juncture, we're going to take a brief break, and we will be right back. Okay, so we are back with Gail Taylor, vlogger, author, writer, editorialist. I hope that's what it is, because or editorializer, one of those. Okay. It, it all fits. Um, that, that works. <laughs> so in one of your writings that I read, um, entitled, What If the March Showed Up at Every Small Town? Oh my God, yeah. You pondered, what if the organizers of the Pussy Hat Marches were to use that same energy and bring that same level of playful disruption to small isolated communities. In light of everything that's happening now, do you still wonder? Um, or is it something that's like, has is a, has they achieved some form of, uh, I don't know, recognition within small isolated communities or is there still work to be done? Um, well, first, there's always work to be done. Yay for that. And I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say when I started to see right after that public lynching of George Floyd, and I mean, the streets were filled with young white women and people of all shades and ethnicities and the cries of justice really reached also the reservations. Mm. Um, to me, it felt different, okay, than maybe the struggles of, like, the 1980s when women were uh, carrying on the ERA marches and asking and doing Take Back the Night because, okay, I'm going to date myself, um, the, the, you know, college uh, 1980s movement Take Back the Night, which was to call attention mm-hmm. to uh, date rape, but it was still very... Um, uh, much, I would say, skewed toward Caucasian women, but mm-hmm. it, it started there. We we started seeing Oakland, but this is something uh, totally different. So, what if the march came to every small town? I was just writing that, and I was feeling isolated. I was feeling like I was the only one thinking about social justice. It was like in 2017, mm-hmm. I think. I think, and I. Um, so living in a region of the country that's surrounded by mountains, and the only reason you would come here to where I am is if you were a college student at West Virginia University, okay? Mm-hmm. And then down the road, down the road, we have Fairmont State. But otherwise, you know, you have generational families, you have generational uh, wealth you know, that's been handed down. But we are like 96 or 97% white in our state, okay? Mm-hmm. So I'm always thinking, I am always thinking about what if the march came to every small town? Because there are so many people that I've seen who are invested in the status quo. Mm-hmm, absolutely. You know, who are actually invested in not changing anything. But I'm a, I'm a daughter of civil rights activists, I should say. And my, my middle name is Denise, you know, to kind of take uh, a throw a shit throw not nod to Louisiana, which is where my mother's side of family is from. So okay, I'm talking about small communities that I think of in the South that were ravaged by Jim Crow. Right? Mm-hmm. Oh God, yeah. Um we fled. I don't know where ancestrally, you know, your people are from. Maybe they're from Queens or Jamaica. I don't know. But no, like the South. The South. Mine mm-hmm. are from the South and so we've heard the stories of mm-hmm. displacement, you know, of displacement. And so here's why I read that. I thought about that. I'm going to say Pussy Riot. I'm here with a elder. So Pussy Riot is a riot, uh, a band, mm-hmm. sorry, from, I think, the Russia, right? Russia, yeah. They, they came out with these hats that covered their face like balaclavas, but they were knitted in very feminine colors. Mm-hmm. I mean, where I live, which is still the South, to be taken seriously, if you're a woman, you have to be feminine. Mm. Yeah, and this is what this is traditionally okay. Right. But what about? I was thinking, what about LGBTQ youth, trans women? How are they going to navigate our changing times mm-hmm. when 
I literally saw people fleeing the cities to their homes. But I wondered, will they be welcome there? They need mm. a movement. You know? Right. And and people who dis who've been displaced due to chemical spills, due to um, oil spills in their southern and rural communities, they have to be they're going to be displaced. Um, will they be welcomed in these um, status quo majority white communities? Mm-hmm. They, 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 need a, they need some marchers. They need a revolution. Even if it's not literally people in the streets, it could be a revolution in thought. Right. Which is like, you know, shouldn't be taken for granted because like a revolutionary thought is just as powerful as like a like revolution where people are taking to the streets. I feel like you need one in order to have the other. They're not mutually exclusive of each other. They kind of work in tandem. Um, but you made me think of like an interesting thing and like the question kind of sort of formed in my head. So if it comes out sloppy, please forgive me. But uh, do you think or how do you think white women are complicit in all of this, like all the, uh, the oppression that um, black people, black women face. And if you feel that they are like still complicit, because I mean, it's kind of sort of undeniable from back in historically, it's undeniable. But like, if they are still complicit, what are some ways that they can address themselves in order to be of better service to the movement? You know, I, I do think about that question that you just posed, and I think about it a lot, um, in part because I've been able to come back to my town and ascend to a little bit of a leadership position in a, in a nonprofit, and I held the position for almost three years, I believe, and, um, but I was the only black person, I was the only woman of color, and it took a toll. Mm, I bet, and, yeah. <laughs> and in part because there were so many, um, I would find like, okay, white women, liberal women who seem to be wanting to start from scratch with literally the question, well, what, what do you want to be called? Black, African-American, is it black? Is it African-American? Mm-hmm. And then even a young woman in her 20s had referred to somebody who is black as colored. Mm, we, never hear, we, yeah, we, we, we never hear it. Now that person wasn't somebody who lives here. So she, she was in a seminar class mm-hmm. that I'd been asked to speak to on zoom. Okay. So she you know, might've been a crasher, but, but still I was, um, so the zoom meeting was conferred by a West Virginian, but that person happened to not live in this state. So no shade on West Virginia there. But mm. but to me, okay, I'm going to say, I was just a little bit exhausted with having to go two steps backward. And mm. I, I was a little bit exhausted, and I'm still a little bit exhausted with the idea that the, so many people still say that they don't see race, mm. and they think that they're being kind. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, I'm very proud of my skin color. I'm very proud to see a range of skin colors and it, that it's that beauty and the pride. Like I love that we have in our country that I'm proud of. So there's that. Now, having said that, I was in Pittsburgh for a yoga retreat that was centered on social justice led by young white women, white women, um, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. They were well-read, first of all, like you were saying earlier. Mm-hmm. It, and they came at this from establishing a relationship with people of color, with Black people. That's all I needed to know was uh, that they were actually genuinely interested in forming a relationship, being a genuine friend first. Mm-hmm over any kind of movement being established. So I'm encouraged by women um, who do that. But, you know, I'm going to, I'm also going to go there and say there's still a lot of 
um, you have to cut through. And, you know, I'm going to say the BS. I'm not going to say the wrong yeah. world. I understand. Yeah. And that, and we don't want to, we don't like to talk about it, but I read about this just to show you all every, I think about it every day. I've got Angela Davis, mm. women, women race in class right here. And it talks about the brutality that black women face historically, that I don't believe white women are aware of in some mm. cases yes, or are willing to face. But I also just listened to um, a Smithsonian Institution interview with a new author who wrote a book about white women who owned slaves. Yeah. And I, I'm gonna, I can't remember the name. You can look it up, but it's, it's Smithsonian. And that blew my mind because, and she said, she blew her mind because technically, legally, they weren't allowed to go to the market and make that purchase of the human being. It was all men's work. Mm-hmm. But you, but they did. She, she found evidence. So in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking about what did you learn about black people mm. and what have you been taught about us especially as a, i'm a black woman you know when it comes to dating okay right i feel like there's always sort of an undercurrent of fear of women black women oh absolutely i say mm-hmm. it's like it's, it's very prevalent like you know in all aspects of media and you can see it in like you know basic interactions in the workplace it's just like there's like not like not only a fear of blackness, but of like tremendous fear of black womanness. You said it. Like, and it's, I mean, it's unfounded <laughs> why they're like, why black women should be feared the way that they are. But of course, we live in a patriarchal capitalist society that's ultimately a clusterfuck. And so it's kind of, it falls upon us to try to, and, you know, I curse a lot. I apologize, but it's up to us to like, you know, to be not. And when I say us, I mean, black people, it's up to, for up to black people to unfuck things to a certain point, but then white people have to take it the rest of the way. Like, and that comes in all regards of just like accepting blackness, um, accepting black womanness, and it's it you know and it's just it's something that feel like i feel in the circles that i move that uh the white people that i meet they get it but they don't they're not getting it all the way and i feel like there's like there's still some way to go with their understanding and their growth and their revolution and it come and it comes from them looking at themselves and saying like oh damn I'm still kind of racist. Like, <laughs> you know, like yeah. those things are like woven into the fabric of my existence and I have to unweave them, cut them out and figure out a way to like go through life, for, like fighting my own racism while I'm fighting racism abroad at large. See, <laughs> it's, it's true. It's embedded and it is embedded in our society. And I know that the majority of people are kind. Um, I, but you know what? This election, this past, the past three years, I have seen and heard things that have blown my mind. And and because that has happened, I can't turn my back or my eye and I have to hold people accountable. So when I hear somebody who is somebody who's in my social circle who's a white woman actually tell me that not just she, but her family, and she, she comes from a family in general that believes that if you're poor, you just are out of luck and may not get health care. Mm. That's if wild. You know, it's like, what? Yeah, that is wild. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and if you're poor, if you're black and unmarried and you're a woman, you're a threat somehow. 
you know, like that right. is in the people's, some people's minds, maybe more people than I think. And, and that is what I think we need to speak out mm-hmm. and call it out because I think it's, that is how our lives matter. That mm-hmm. is how our lives matter. When we say, um, if one of us goes into the hospital or a checkup or an emergency, um, are we going to do the recitation? Right. Uh, you know, which is speaking up. I am a socially responsible person and I have these accolades and these titles, you know, mm-hmm. or are we just going to expect that we're going to get care? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and you speak on like care and hospitals and like how like disproportionately, uh, like black women are perceived to be perceived as being invulnerable. <laughs> and at the same time, it's just like, you know, you have these ideas coming from like the historically the Venus hot and tot to this idea of like this welfare queen and like, you know, what that looks like thanks to Reaganomics. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's still, it just baffles me. Just like, you know, this perception of how we view black women. Like I just, and how we don't take them as like, how we don't take black women as like being human. And then beyond that, it extends to like black LGBTQ, like that, that community and how like they're seen as less than also. I mean, and this is like, you know, these thoughts are so powerful that they even invade black people's thoughts where like black people think of like that, like LGBTQ and black women as second hand citizens, yet they're hoping and wanting them to take care of them, you know? So it's just like this that idea of care. It's like this very, it's like a cyclical psychotic type of like, concept when it comes to like a black personage black personage and just existing while black yeah so so one of the things that I decided to do was instead of being rattled every time I was thrown a curveball by somebody in my social social circle who said something like whack okay Mm -hmm. I decided that I was going to mentally put a penny in a jar and then spend that, <laughs> you know, spend that on self-care. Right. Okay? <laughs> and I'm just going to take a mental break and invest that energy in me. <laughs> mm. And that has helped me more than anything to just sort of navigate this. And it also has created some space. Mm. Afrofuturism, space. Ah. You know? well, like you know, the dual meaning of space in that in that um situ- that circumstance, yeah. It's like yeah. space and space. So yeah. speaking of this, like also, um, it reminds me of like the like <laughs> when I say research, I lo- I use that term extremely loosely. But have you ever heard of uh, morphogenetic fields or the morphogenetic field? I have never heard of this. What is that? Okay, morphogenetic. So yeah, morphogenic field. It's like a, it's a concept, and again, very loose uh, definition of research is what I've done. Um, it's a concept. It was started by this uh, this guy, Rupert Sheldrake, and it's a theory that, and I'm reading here, is a theory that states that the shape of living organisms and their behavioral patterns are transmitted through a field not visible to the eye. In other words, the thoughts and behavior patterns of living organisms are subconsciously made into intangible shape on a morphogenetic field and sent out to their to other organisms. So it's kind of like the like the concept of collective unconsciousness, how things that like our ancestors have done, like we still do. We don't know why we do it. We don't know why we tend to make the decisions we make. We don't know why we create the things that we create. We just kind of know. It's just like a stupid, stupid example. <laughs> no one ever actually taught me how to fry chicken, but I could fry the shit out of some chicken, you know? <laughs> okay. It's just like, where did I get that from? Like, I just know, like, 
no, you put it in flour, you do this, you do that, and then like you fry it up, and then there you go, you got some fried chicken. I'm not going to give away my I, my recipe because okay. yeah, I'm not I'm not trying to do that right at this uh, at this platform. Come on, but that's, it's weird that's for the convention. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. If you if I get paid for it, then I'll give you my recipe. Um, mm-hmm. But like it's so like there's a kind of sort of belief according to uh, Sheldrake that like you can access this. Uh, morphogenetic field and actually pull knowledge from it and um, like you can create and and communicate with your and with the ancestors or with uh, like people across the globe or different cultures across space and across time and so like when you talk about Afrofuturism it like really like made me think about like um, accessing the morphogenetic field and just like pulling inspiration or thought like i don't know where it comes from i'm just like communicating with some other entity in order to produce whatever it is that i'm producing so i want to know where do you find like your a lot of your inspiration where's the fount of inspiration and information come from for you interesting well i was thinking about what you said that um morphogenetic this field it's, mm-hmm. it's knowledge it's access it's knowledge creativity and action so or um wi- wisdom comes to mind as well mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. um and so i guess you're asking me where do i draw from and mm-hmm. um so two things but the first thought is i'm so happy we're having this conversation and this is a conversation i also cannot have in all circles of my life, which right. I, you know, reject, I reject that idea, but um, it's true. Um, so when the chips are down, and I've experienced this, it has to start with uh, my breath, my my groundedness. Like I have to sit down, mm. and I mean, not on the couch. <laughs> Not on the sofa, not on the chair. I mean, on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to have the earth support mm. support my body. Um, so I think I get it a lot of my knowledge there from just having to lie down on, you know, go out to the backyard, lie down, or go, yeah. if I'm in the apartment, lie down on the floor, um, turn off everything. If there's anything electronic, I can't deal with it at mm. that juncture. And then, to be to you know to be real, writing, having a notebook at my side so that I can listen. And I should have said first listening to my listening to my heartbeat though, because sometimes there aren't any words. Mm-hmm. So you talked about this. I mean, how do how do my ancestors know? to put furniture in every corner of the house. Right. And they tilt, tilted at an angle. And to me, sometimes it bugs me. But then there are some folks in my family who say, no, that's the way it's supposed to be. Mm. <laughs> but, but how do you know? Like, how do you know? Yeah. Um, I have to be on the ground. I have to be um, as close to nature as I possibly can in that moment. Maybe, maybe it's a classroom. Hopefully I have a stone with me, you know, like a crystal. Mm. <laughs> I'm a little bit of a lover of crystals. I have to admit. Mm. Um, so and, that. <laughs> yeah. And because to me, it's, it's something about energy. It's something about vibration. It's something about consciousness raising it i don't uh yeah let me think about that i think yeah because i feel like it's like you know it's important it's important to like study these things like you know like um like history in order to prepare for you have to know history in order to prepare better for the future and also that like this like certain things are just programmed in our dna and that's not necessarily always good things because it's just like with the good comes the bad so it's just like while 
there are things like a certain sweat, whether it be a certain swagger or just like a way of speaking or a certain um, level of knowledge that comes with being black that you don't have any idea where it comes from. You just know. And it's something that goes like all across the diaspora where you can just like meet a black person in like, like Czechoslovakia mm-hmm. and like have a completely different uh, is it the Czech Republic? The Czech Republic, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> you have like a right. completely different, you know, language and culture. Yet you can still communicate. There's still that vibe that you get that you can that you still know, and you can give the like that head nod, like yeah, I get you. And it's like a like this weird communication that I'm not sure if other like uh, cultures or people share. I'm not going to say that black people are the only one that have this, but like in my experience, black people <laughs> that have this. Um, and it's so it's weird. It's almost like with that though, there's that trauma that's also embedded in our DNA that we carry with us that informs how we navigate and how we create within like this society. Um, I think this is very true. We think about our grandparents. We think about our, you know, if we were fortunate to know our great grandparents, um, and what they saw, what they survived. And then, um, okay. I'm just going to say being open and re- having tension released from your body is to me anyway, the only way that I can access any prior knowledge. And I do believe what you're saying that that prior knowledge exists. I believe I, now I'm going to tell you this, but I was on the phone the other day again with somebody who's not black, but who is um, an ethnic minority in this country. But she's steeped in the system, okay? Mm. So, so, you know, if I'm talking about hibiscus tea, in this case was the conversation, and and how good it is for you, um, you know, am I going to get grilled (laughs) by this person who would say, Oh, there's a prescriptive medication that will also, you know, ameliorate all those issues that mm. that some herb tea, you know, may or may not. And you don't know, like, the um, am- amount in a sachet of tea, you know. Right. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but I know what ancestors did. Right. <laughs> You know, before anyone also came to disrupt their mm. their living situation um, or kidnap them, <laughs> right? Displaced, yeah. There's Displaced many them. different ways to say it. Displaced them, you know, because it can, like you know, I was thinking about this the other night because there are some people who would want to say, "Oh, we we're going to get so deep." Um, and, you know, all kinds of things about the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, people were living their lives. Mm-hmm. They too had to take care of the sick. They too had to take care of the injured and educate people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there is prior, there's always prior knowledge and our knowledge, our black history doesn't begin with slavery. Right. Absolutely. Or enslavement. Absolutely. And, you know, that's why um, you asked. I mean, I hope this this gets to it. I think there's energy out there. Some people would say we we do know how to heal. We have have it within us to heal. I mean, holistic medical practitioners would even say to a certain extent that that is true, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) What about you? Because like, I want to have this this other thing. You know, what do you think? Oh, uh, I think about what? How did you come to discover this morph? Is it morphology? Uh, morph- morphogenetic field. Morphogenetic field? Yeah. Because about- <laughs> so- <laughs> it's so interesting. <laughs> so, like, um, I mean, it's no secret. I'm a huge nerd. So I started mm-hmm. playing this. Vi- it's a video game called uh, the Nonary Game. And the nonary game, it's uh, basically a series of escape rooms that you have to figure out puzzles in order to get to, like, the next. uh, It's You solve one escape room to get to the next escape room. 
but there's like an underlying there's like an underlying story that's carrying you from one escape room to the next. And oh. I can't play a video game unless I get really deep into the story. I love story. I'm a storyteller and I love reading stories. And so the story in this, it involved <laughs> I don't want to spoil it just in case there's people like who want to play it, but basically you're trapped on a ship at the beginning of the game and you have to figure out how to get out of the ship, right? That's the premise. Seems very basic. But then it starts to get very metaphysical and speak about the characters in the game start to speak about, well, how do I know to turn this lever or put this block in this place? I have no idea what I'm doing. I just know there's an uh, there's another force out there that's telling me to do it. And then when you pull back... It's just like, oh shit, I'm the other force that's telling them to do it. They're talking about me, the player. So it's the character in the game talking about me, the player, while I'm playing the game. And that is oh. an example of the that's an example of crossing the morphogenetic fields because wow. it it assumes that the video game is a reality and the characters in that video game exist in that reality and they're presented with a puzzle that they have no idea how to solve. And then all of a sudden they know how to solve it because something is telling them how to solve it. And that's something being the player. And then once like I got to that point in the story where I understood what was going on, I was just like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is my favorite game that's, in the world. <laughs> that's mind blowing right there. Yeah. Morphogenetic field. Okay. Um, cool. That gives me chills because Okay, I'm thinking about um, the movie. I think it's called The Children of Gods or Children of Men or something. And, um, oh, dear. I wish I could remember the guy. Um, he's this actor. But uh, the premise is it's a dystopian fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, an ordinary city. Kind of looks like London in the film. Is... Um, comes to a screeching halt and there are some attacks it's an underground movement mm-hmm. that that's risen up and there is an escape room kind of quality to this mm. because you know suddenly people have to get to safety because by and large each day some folks get rounded up and snatched off the street mm. and, you know and are you going to be one or are you going to not turn to the right down that alley or are you going to go left you know and when are you going to escape from this situation and how are you going to do it because you can't be too transparent about it Mm. either because uh, not everybody can go where you're going right right yeah i'll look it up like i'll look it up based on the description i'll look it up and i'll put it in the um the description of the podcast just in case there are other people that want to talk um about it and like any other topics or uh links i'll place in the description of this part of this episode of the podcast so people have uh reference and access to the reference um but unfortunately now we have to close (laughs) we our time together has come to an end for this episode, at least. <laughs> yeah, I mean, once uh, you get going, like, you know, things just start flowing. Time. I was, yeah. I was surprised. Okay, well, anytime you would want to do this again, let me know. This has been amazing. You're an awesome interviewer. Oh, I mean, I, I, I greatly appreciate that because I always, I, ha- I suffer from imposter syndrome. So I'm just like, everything I do is trash. So like, it's good to hear and just remind myself, Jason, you're not trash. You make good stuff. Oh, you made great stuff. Best to you, your family, and um, you know, looking forward to seeing this and more. Cool. And uh, b- but before we go, I want to give you the opportunity to uh, let the people know what you're up to and to get drop any plugs that you have on projects that you have going on, or you know, anything you want the people to know about. Oh my goodness! Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, well, my latest project involves drive flowers and beads i'm not sure exactly where i'm going to take it but i feel called to do something with those two mediums and i'm working on some more essays um but my instagram is at pretty kitty publishing pretty kitty publishing 
It's also the name of my independent publishing um, collective that I used to produce Red Dust Daughter, which is available on Amazon.com. It covers my life in journalism. I believe that's all for now. Um, that's it. <laughs> okay, cool. I'll definitely make sure that um, I put links to everything, your Instagram profile and other links into the description of the podcast, as I say, stated. And the last question I will ask you before we part is, what is black? Beautiful. <laughs> okay. That, and also very real. It's real. We are not a myth. We are not magical. <laughs> we are Black is, black is here. It will always be. And um, it's substantive. Oh. Substantive. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for gracing us with your presence. Um, I look forward to hearing more from you soon and like hopefully having you back on and also uh, reading more from Pretty Kitty Publishing. And to see what, what comes of the uh, dry flowers and beads. Okay, very good. Let's do it again. We can also do conference too. Yeah, sometime cool. in the future. Yeah, I mean, right. again, this is just the beginning. All right, take okay. care. All right, you take care too. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank Bye. you. Thanks for listening to the What is Black podcast, a McCoy creative project. For more information and bullet notes that provide deeper context, check out the feel notes on whatisblackpodcast.com. Your support is always much appreciated. So if you want to toss us a few dollars to keep this going, visit ko-fi.com slash whatisblackpodcast. That's Kofi spelled ko-fi.com slash whatisblackpodcast. If you don't have the loot, that's cool. Support us by sharing this with your people, following us on Spotify, or rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you drop us five stars, we might just shout you out and answer your general questions on Black Artness. If you need to contact us, hit up whatisblackpod at gmail.com or on Instagram at whatisblackpodcast. And to quote myself from earlier, I'll see you in Night City. Peace.